Hi everybody, it's Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicle Stories of the Supernatural. And as promised, I am here streaming live and I'm going to do a Q&A about sadists and serial killers. And I've got over here, off to my right, Sam. Hey Sam. Hello. Okay, Sam is a retired law enforcement officer, but right now she's still involved in sensitive work, which is why she's going to stay off screen, okay? and. The reason, I mean, even though I normally do paranormal stuff, the reason why I'm doing the sadists and serial killers is, believe it or not, a lot of them are involved either in dark magic, you know, which a lot of people in the paranormal world are, are interested in that, or they cause a lot of people to lose their lives under circumstances, which sometimes cause hauntings, or they themselves, uh, everybody wonders, well, what happens to these sadists and these serial killers, you know, after they pass away i mean is there is there such a thing as heaven hell all of the above but anyway but for today we're going to talk about sadists and serial killers and we're going to look at from the medieval perspective of you know what was happening back then what we now recognize were serial killers and then even to modern times uh including some of the less known serial killers or people that have demonstrated serial killers um, how can I say some of their the characteristics that now have been identified you know through profiling the FBI so forth that these are the characteristics that help law enforcement recognize hey you know what I've got a serial killer on my hand now let me ask you something Sam and I want you to talk about this you know like I said you know the FBI developed you know profiling like hey this is what you look for but Historically, what happened was that if a serial killer killed people in different jurisdictions, it would take a while for law enforcement to realize that they were looking for that same person, right? Yes, it's difficult today because there is no system uh, where you can document, uh, let's say, traits or similarities. It, it's, it's not available yet. The, the only way even today we find out of a serial killer's uh, when they give bolos uh, to different departments and if somebody reads something and finds similarities to what they're already dealing with and that's how they're able to link them so if that's still very difficult today back in the past when it was even communication was even more difficult you weren't able to link and it could have been happening okay. back in these uh, these times so in other words you know again when people don't when they're not sharing that 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 information that's when you kind of lose to realize, hey, you know, this this person that was killed this way, there's somebody over in either another state or another county who got killed the same way. Yes, there's no database. You basically find out through um, paperwork that's actually put out there where officers can actually read what another what's happening in another jurisdiction. And okay. that's how they're able to link the information. There is no system that says, okay, this person does strangulation, leaves them in a field where you can enter that information and it'll bring up other areas that are having similarities. There is no system like that at this time. Right. So in other words, if we, and, and I'm going to use prostitutes because I know a lot of times these victims, because of, you know, let's say opportunity, they end up being you know like soft targets easy targets easy that's targets they, you know they, they usually soft targets because they're easy access they're easy access so for example uh let's say in let's say in miami they find a couple of prostitutes that were 
killed a certain way and maybe a certain type of uh, you know ligature or some that they were killed a certain way and then two counties over they have two other prostitutes which sometimes unfortunately because of their lifestyle their risky lifestyle they're overlooked as you know that yes that they're being targeted a, specifically it was just a John that did it right a John sometimes you guys might not realize that hey these two prostitutes two counties over and the two you got over here were killed the same way or tied up the same way or certain things were left correct as you usually even your jurisdictions that say Dayton Broward you mm -hmm. still don't link it in that in that form it, again sometimes what they call they have intelligent me and when they're actually physically talking one oh, can right. talk about one their case and then the other one will talk about the other one and says well mine are similar that's the only way you're able to link them. And that's if if and that if, conversation comes if up. If that conversation comes up. Okay. Which, again, you know, because a lot of people sometimes, you know, when they look at these serial killers and it takes so long to really even recognize that there was a serial killer or that they have this string of killings, you know, and people don't realize that sometimes, especially if the victims or somebody is involved in risky behavior, that you, you, you realize, wait, this is more than one, one person. Unfortunately, when it comes to the prostitutes, it usually will take more than just two. It's of usually course. when you have a series of eight. Or they've moved on from those, you know, soft or easy targets to the average American that now you... A soccer mom. Exactly. Or That's some. when, unfortunately, more attention because a lot of times the prostitute is not reported by anybody else. It's only mm -hmm. by discovery. You found the body and you... Oh right. yeah, she was a prostitute. Well, usually, of course, unfortunately, it does happen where a John will kill them because they don't want to pay for the services. Okay. So it's hard. Or I imagine also, right? Correct. And uh, that's why a lot of times those are overlooked as just those type of murders. Okay. So you know, and again, you know, but what I want to do, guys, is like I said, um, real quick, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to describe to you because you'd be surprised exactly what the definition of a sadist is, okay? Uh, and basically, everybody, when they think of a sadist, you're met, you immediately think of a serial killer, somebody going out there, and yes, some of them are serial killer sadists, but believe it or not, the heart of a sadist is somebody that enjoys hurting others in order to make themselves feel better. Now, the reason why I say this is believe it or not, we all know somebody that falls into this description. Sometimes it's our bosses. I know there's a lot of people going out there going, yeah, I got one of those. Okay, yeah, but uh, I'm not talking about a difficult boss. You know, it's somebody, again, that their gratification comes from seeing somebody cringe in terror. It could be a spouse. It could be a parent. It could be a sibling. It could be a doctor, a lawyer, and even some police officers. Okay, <laughs> pretend you didn't hear that sound. Okay. And every in other words, they're out there, but to varying degrees, okay? And basically, these are people that attack other, attack other people without provocation. And I'm going to tell you, I think we've all run across people like that, that you see what is wrong with this person. Now, the actual definition of sadism is, defining, is defined as inflicting, infliction of suffering for sexual gratification, okay? In other words, a sadist enjoys watching a victim squirm from fright okay and they're gonna inflict pain on that person okay or threaten to inflict pain on that person just to see their terrified reaction okay when they see somebody crying 
whether their eyes are filled with terror. This is before they've even maybe even touched them. Okay, a person pleading for mercy. Uh, these are all the things that arouse a sadist. Okay, a tormenting a victim helps them for like making them makes them feel better. It it makes them feel like they're more worthy. And that thing of having complete control over a helpless person makes him feel godlike. Which, by the way, this also dovetails with the definition of, of somebody who has no conscience, okay? Which is a psychopath, okay? And a lot of people don't realize this. Many psychopaths, it's not a sociopath, they're not made, they're born that way. They have no emotions and what they, they don't have, they don't want love, you know, the things most normal human beings want. What they want is control. Okay, now, as I mentioned when I was giving heads up about this show, the worst type of serial killers are what's called sadist serial killers. Okay, now these people spend their entire lives fantasizing about and creating new, way, new ways to make a person suffer. Now remember, suffer doesn't necessarily mean going out and killing somebody. That's why when I say bosses or people, there's people out there that they can manipulate or they have some authority or power over another person, they will sit there and figure out ways to do that. All right? I'm going to give you a perfect example. Okay? I'm going to give you a perfect example of that. I'm sure everybody knows about the BTK killer. All right? The BTK killer for many years was a code enforcement officer for the place he lived at. And guess what? When they spoke to neighbors, this guy loved going around his neighborhood and his community doing what? Screwing with people, looking for things, little things that he pulled out his little code enforcement book and would basically give all these people all these fines. And you would think, of course, in the scale of, of in reality, what he was doing, which was killing people. But believe me, he went through years where he wasn't killing anybody. All right. That's why he was out there so long. Plus, of course, he was masquerading as a real, as a regular guy, you know, church, family, code enforcement officer. But what I'm saying is that there are people out there that are a version of the BTK killer without the killing part. Okay. That if somehow or other they have a position because of their jobs, maybe in positions they have as in their churches or wherever they something they will use this position to victimize people even if it's to make that person scared i'm going to get you fired you know i'm going to get you in trouble with your parents you know it could be anything that's why i'm saying the sadist doesn't necessarily have to be a serial killer which of course though that's that's the worst you know because if your job really gets if your boss really gets out of control i mean it could destroy you financially but you always have a choice of moving on and going on to another job but Believe it or not, there's a lot of sadists running around out there. But anyway, now, like I said, they the sadists, all they do is fantasize about creating new ways to make a person suffer. Okay? Um, now, you know, normal people, they look forward to like, hey, I'm going to get together with my family or friends. I'm going to go out. I'm going to go to Disney. You know, normal stuff that makes people happy. Guess what makes a serial killer or sadist uh, happy? In, in the sense of we're, now we're talking uh, uh, a sadistic uh, serial predator. What makes them happy is looking forward to their next kill. Okay? You know what, what let's say, whether, let's say, if, uh, you know, Christmas morning is to other people? You know, like, you know, hey, no. What they think of is the next kill. 
uh, and basically they live for causing damage and getting away with it getting away with it this is very important um, now uh, and, and this is the thing say, I'm going to ask you about this because this is what they're saying when investigators find people that have been killed okay um, and they you know and they find evidence that there's torture involved in other words this person wasn't just whacked or killed or stabbed that in other words that there was mutilation and torture I'm seeing that one of the first things that come to mind is that then they they're talking about a sadist even if it was a one kill do you, is that what you find out there as far as yes because uh, it's not uh, a kill for passion was usually yet yeah, could be very violent but it's very brutally violent not tortures were prolonging their death right in other words that you're thinking this person tortured this other person just to to see them agonize right this, that's the pleasure of and the joy of watching this person slowly in pain and suffering until they die the the other the passion kill is an overkill right they kill them quickly very brutally not for the purpose of watching the the anger the anger that they're dis displaying and causing the pain like right when they say these people that are sometimes stabbed 20 times you know right. or even strangulation like you right. said because it's like they say it's a personal but and that's very good that you make that 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 difference where yeah you have the passion kill which is overkill right you know but it's overkill they're it, like the person's already dead and they're continuing yeah they're still injuring like, in right whereas the sadist is on the contrary they want to delay that point where this person actually dies as much as possible right Right. so that they can um, so let me ask you uh, so I mean like you said this is one of the things you guys look at if you find like an unusual murder scene is that what one of the pointers as far as to look towards a suspect or what right because uh, there's no other than the pleasure of, of, of watching a person die slowly that's okay that yeah is, what other that is, that's the reason for it what other reason could there be except right okay the pleasure of the kill okay and, and I imagine also like like what everybody says is when you are if it's a passion thing I guess you guys gonna look right away at boyfriends or girlfriends or neighbors or close right. somebody that had some type or partner business partners Angry enough to do it because it's usually they beat the person because of the anger right and the result of that is death not right. the intention the result of it is death not the intention the other way is slow torture f with the intent to kill that person okay so in other words right maybe they might not even have started with thinking that they were going to end up killing this person is what you're right. saying they were just displaying the anger they and it had just, for that person that and it got so out of control so that they ended up killing the person okay all right and, and you know that makes a lot of sense but you know uh getting back real quick and the reason why i, I wanted to to discussed right up front what are the hallmarks of a sadist is because again even though we're going to talk about serial killers later on people need to be aware that there are sadists out there that not necessarily are serial killers I mean they can wreak havoc on your life if you know you happen to be in their orbit um, now um, now uh, now th also they're saying uh, that one of the, the things also like when crime scenes are found okay uh, you know about you know let's say if you go and you find a certain crime scene and you know you've got like we said 
some evidence that this person was tortured before they eventually died is because I believe that some of the profiling that they've done with this type of person is that first of all they're very organized or meticulous almost like they're perfectionist you know like when a person has no emotion which is when people get like all make mistakes in other words that kind of they're able to they don't have that emotion and that they really plan ahead of time their crimes which is right. why they makes them so difficult sometimes to right because to they, catch them. they already know what they're going to do before they even get there this is a planned event okay for their pleasure unlike crime of passion which is the is it it's a result of anger so there is no planning there's no you know the, the, the person that kills for pleasure they've already they've got their choice of weapons they have the, the place probably pre uh, planned what location they're going to use okay so they've already done like their own surveillance to know that they're not going to be caught and they're able to work what they want to do if necessary for hours to, to pleasure themselves okay so in other words what you're saying and, and, and also I've heard that what happens is that um, that one of the things also that they find is that because they're so organized in other words that like you said they set up all these things especially to cover their tracks that sometimes it's difficult also to recognize are you talking about a younger person or are you talking about an older person because you know everybody thinks of young and sloppy versus right. older and careful but if you've got one of these super organized it's difficult. It's also uh, that we've, we've discussed before. Uh, stranger to strangers, usually the case. Yeah, right. That they choose victims on purpose that they have no connection to. Right, and that's why it makes it even more difficult to find because the usual no suspects are there's no connection to that person. It's not somebody from their job. It's not a person from their home. It's not a person from the neighborhood. It's just a random person that they choose either prior to that somebody they've watched. Right. Or just it happened to be the they, they call it the person was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. Or in some cases, like what you were talking about, they might have seen that person a week before, and they just start following them around because they say that's 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 the kind of victim that I get my thing, right. you know, whatever for whatever reason. Sometimes it's not only opportunity; it's you fit that uh, whatever mold it is that that they mold know. that they that they're looking for. So you know, it's like. Now, um, and, and, and also, and this is, this is something also that I find really disturbing, is that they find that these predators, they never stop thinking about how to make other people suffer. They don't take a downtime. In other words, even if they're acting like normal people, like on the outside, all the time what's going on behind their eyes is figuring out how to make another person suffer, okay? Uh, and, 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 and they're always looking like also for new ways like like to up the ante you know if I did this the last time and it was great I wonder if now I do that what's you know right and they even experiment well let me try this and see if this is something that I'm gonna enjoy because they're doing it for a different reason they, these people are, are killing for the pleasure of it for the the, the sexual gratification from it <laughs> and this is the part you know a lot of people Believe it or not, and this is the thing that a lot of people sometimes have a hard time wrapping their head around, sadists orgasm when they see people terrorized. And the reason why I say this is, you know, sexual drive in human beings is one of the most powerful drives that we have. The pleasure normally acquired through sexual contact, whatever that is. 
Now, can you imagine you have the same drive that towards sexual gratification, but what's going to take you there to that orgasm is to see somebody pleading for mercy while you're torturing them, while you're killing them, while the life is leaving them. Now, think about then what the drive is for that person to then go and find another victim. It's like... Yeah, it's part of the, what, the, it's, what we would call the foreplay. Yeah, this is, this is, yeah, exactly. This is like, you know, uh, the same as, let's say, you're planning uh, to get together with this person and you have a date and you say, well, I'm going to buy this nice nighty, or I'm going to get her flowers or I'm going to set this up hoping you're going to end up getting lucky, you know. And you know how people put all this thought into, I'm going to buy this wine and blah, blah. And like you said, the foreplay. Yeah, that's their, that's their planning. They, they, okay, so when they're, when they're thinking how the many ways that they're going to, what they're going to do, and like you said, get the equipment or get the setting, the place where they're going to take them to, this is what, this is the part that, which, you know, um, I know for most human beings, this is a very alien thing, even though we're fascinated with serial killers. Uh, but I think that some people just really don't understand how these people that that the way their mind works Okay, is totally um, th th That there is no emotion no mercy no compassion. No, you know um, I'm gonna kill this person and end their life and probably ruin their family's life to go with it. All they're thinking is I'm gonna get my, ro my rocks off. I mean, that's that's yes. really what it boils down yeah, to That's why well, people are interested because they can't it's, you can't understand it, so you want to understand what, why they do this. What, that's why I think people are fascinated by it, listening to these stories because it's hard to connect or understand where they're coming from. Right, and, and, and from what I understand also for, for them, once they, especially when they're younger, when they, when they jump from that fantasy over to actually committing it, because you know that that's what they find. A lot of these sadists, a lot of them, uh, start either as peeping toms or rapists and then at one point they actually jump into the actual killing yes. you know when they if they ever catch them and they look at their if they ever have any arrest records and for them it's like that first kill it's in other words it's like the potato chip thing you know you know can I only never have one Correct. okay and that's what happens with them they kill that one and that's it it doesn't like okay well now I'm good it, it progresses it progresses you. and same thing and they say uh like when if you've never drunk coffee you've never had caffeine you have that first cup and you're like oh you could run around for 48 hours but eventually as time goes by that that great effect that you felt diminishes so you have to drink more yes in order to get that pleasure that excitement whatever that you were looking for and they're saying that this is exactly what happens to these say the serial killers yeah the that it doesn't doesn't affect them the same way right that maybe the first time they Rape and murder somebody quickly, but the next time it's like, okay, now next time I'm not going to kill her right away. I'm going to like go through all these, this planning and all this other thing to really see her squirm. Or I mean, I've even heard of serial killers that at some point they, they, they're not satisfied with one victim. Then that's when they start doubling up. And if they can get away a with taking two of them, okay, they actually do that as well. Um, and and of course, what we discussed before that a lot, most serial killers, uh, if they're ever caught, they they find they find that they they lead double lives. All right. Um, in other words, the, the that they have that normal good guy, 
you know, yes, because they're aware of what they're doing that's wrong, so they have to live as normal as a life as possible, or can, and because they don't have a conscience, they're able to live a normal life because it doesn't weigh on them. So there is no, never any signs of, of anything at their job, at their home, because it does not weigh on them. Right, and, and which, and you know, we were talking about that earlier when, you know, we talk about, um, you know, is, is somebody that can do this to another person, are they mentally ill, or are they just pure evil? Okay, because to me, and we were talking about it, usually somebody that's really truly mentally ill, they, especially with, you know, with very serious diseases of the brain, they kind of, they kind of lose that thing of what's right and what's wrong. So they don't bother even to hide what they're doing or to be able to go to the, um, to the lengths of, basically hiding or doing that double life you know that two that two-faced life because hey but when they go to that it's like to me it's like okay somewhere along the line maybe somebody's going to build a defense and say that you're mentally ill but i think that in truth you're not mentally ill you just pure evil that's that's my personal opinion yeah, that, that's my opinion doc some doctors would differ uh-huh some attorneys are going to differ but yeah, I know, I know. If you're a good defense lawyer, the first thing you're going to look at is like, okay. This person is ill. This person is ill. He, you know, diminished capacity, whatever, whatever, whatever. But anyway, guys, what I'm going to do right now is I am going to take you, all right, all the way back to medieval times, okay, with some of the first serial killers. And we're going to look at the differences, okay, of what happened back then to now to what is you know, yeah, you can say mental illness, but you're going to see what I mean, that that mental illness stuff only holds water so far, especially when people got away for years and years with killing hundreds of people sometimes, okay? And to me, I'm like, if you're truly mentally ill, you, I don't think that you could have gotten away for so long without somebody saying, man, that person's crazy, you know? Like, yes. or to go through that death of disguising, of pretending, okay? Um, because believe me, I, I have encountered and I've worked with people who are truly mentally ill, okay? And yeah, they can act normal, they can function, but you can still see something about their behavior, even when they're medicated, by the way, that lets you know that there's something not quite right about them, you know? And, you know, sometimes, most of the times they have good days, but they have certain days or moments when you absolutely can see that there is something that's off about this person. So when you hear about these stories about people going on for years and years and then later on they're supposedly mentally ill, but they were able to lead this double life and nobody caught on, it's like, I don't know, that 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 to me just does not quite do it for me as far as, um, but anyway, guys, I'm gonna take you all the way back to the 16th century. We're gonna go that far back and we are going to look at um, basically because back then when people committed such um, some horrible acts or this aberrant behavior guess what it was all about the devil <laughs> you know remember this is this is medieval between the medieval dark times renaissance and believe it or not, back then, the belief in the devil and the forces of darkness was prevalent. This was, everybody believed it. This, 
everybody took it very seriously so the first one I'm going to go back to is back in France in 1521 I'm going to go through a couple of cases that they're very similar uh, one was called the werewolf of Poligny this was in France okay and that these were two French peasants one was named Pierre the other one was named Michel okay now um, this whole this thing started 19 years before 19 years okay when one of them Burgo okay Pierre okay I'm on Pierre Burgo uh, he tells of course he confesses when he's caught that 19 years before he's out with his sheep so I guess he was a shepherd okay and a man in black comes up to him and makes him promise that he's gonna serve him all right and uh, that when he kissed the guy's hand it felt cold like a dead man and then he fell on his knees and gave his allegiance to Satan all right now to me this sounds like uh, the equivalent of I'm crazy back then it was Satan came and stole my soul but anyway about a year later he doesn't want to do that anymore okay so another guy comes to see him a guy named Michel Verdun okay kind of talks him back into it all right and they go to what he called a ceremony out in the forest and then Verdun tells him take off all your clothes and he rubs supposedly a magic ointment on his body okay and when he did this he says that he found that his arms and legs had become hairy and his hands had reshaped into paws and then that the other guy put that oil on him he transformed into a werewolf and then they started the first of several blood-soaked excursions into the French countryside they killed a woman as she was gathering peas in her garden uh, another person that came to rescue her he was killed all right now uh, on another time they they killed a four-year-old girl that ate her okay another one was strangled they drank her blood cannibalism uh, they murdered two other children um, okay one of the kids that got away he called it a werewolf but again you know a child is very impressionable as to also the the culturally like I said I think it was very hard for people at that time to think that normal human beings were running around doing this not only killing but actually eating their victims and drinking their blood <clears throat> by the way they also were killing goats okay they were tearing out their throats now again you thinking to yourself is this guy crazy or was he trying to throw him off or uh, but anyway <clears throat> Michel Verdun he's eventually caught and when they caught him supposedly he was dripping with blood and um, he was tortured and of course he implicated the other guy Pierre so um, December 1521 they were brought to trial and this is the thing that I wanted to point out Sam which the one who presided over it was a John Bowden who was the prior of a Dominican convent now the reason why I point this out is back then it's not like that you go to court like you do now and you have a judge back then a lot of times especially in these small villages out in the countryside the person that presided over whatever was supposedly illegal or a trial were heads of religious houses you know so you see where the devil thing comes in yes <laughs> okay um, and of course during the trial 
they start talking about this lycanthropy thing like you know I rubbed magic oil and I became a wolf and of course this was all set in motion because I met a dark stranger in the forest who made me swear allegiance to him um, and b bottom line um, they were sentenced to death and they were burnt at the stake for their crimes uh, now this is the question was this only just posturing from sadistic killers you know um, which by the way one of the things is around that time the folklore was that tales of people meeting a, a sinister man dressed in black in the countryside this was not an unusual thing that people described during these times okay um, in other words um, back then Satan was referred to the devil was referred to as the black man and uh, also that thing that when he kissed the guy's hand it was cold uh, this had to do with back then witches would say that the devil's semen was icy cold so this cold thing and the black man this was kind of part of the folklore so that the fact that they came up with this makes me think that if you were going to be tried and you knew that the guy who's presiding over these is a religious figure you're like i better throw the devil into this mix real quick yes as a way to excuse that i was running around killing people drinking their blood and eating them Yes, and we still have some people that use those same excuses today. Today, yeah, you're right, you're right. But, again, you have to understand, though, whereas now, people would be like, yeah, right. Back then, it was like, yeah, I believe it, but we're still going to burn you at the stake. You know what I'm saying? Yes. But, now, back in, uh, you know, in, uh, believe it or not, this thing with the wolf and the devil thing, uh, you know, like I said, that was back in France in 1581, in 1521, I'm sorry, 1581. Okay, 60 years later, this was in Germany. There's another guy, his name is Peter Nyers or Niers. Okay, now he was a bandit, a black magician, and a serial killer. Okay, and he kind of lived in an area close to Nuremberg, Germany. Now, uh, the information that nowadays they got historically are from the warrants that were officially issued for him. Okay, because remember, he was a robber, he was he was killing people in the course of robbing them but also back then they would do like ballads people talk about it do oral histories remember back then not everybody was literate so you know a lot of it was word of mouth and that uh, basically they once they were caught they confessed but anyway uh, what it's saying is that he had he was like a robber with a gang okay and um, he had also what was he had a mentor, which his name was Martin's Steer, okay. Who it was really funny because that mentor he had, he had a gang, but they would pose as shepherds, okay, murdering and robbing as far from like Germany to the Netherlands, okay. So this thing of disguising themselves, you know, they would disguise themselves as shepherds, okay, and I guess that's how they would feel feel, you know, fool people into okay I guess it's okay to camp next to the shepherds except the shepherds they murdered and they robbed you because that's the thing back then a lot of these robbers didn't just rob you they would kill you now the difference is a lot of them would just kill you just kill you for whatever reason maybe they didn't want to witness which in and of itself is the difficult thing but there was none of the you know eating people or none of that but anyway which by the way I found out okay um, in the middle of this research, okay, something that I think is really interesting, believe it or not, 
shepherds at this time were considered very dishonorable. I didn't know that. I'm always thinking of shepherd as these guys out in the fields with their sheep or their goats. And this, this was just a way of life. No. Back then, being a shepherd, you were like really low on the society's rung up the pecking order. And below them was wandering minstrels. So if you ran around, you know, singing <laughs> for your living, man, it's changed a lot. Yes. So anyway, um, you know, basically he had this, this, this guy that was the one that taught him, but not only supposedly taught him uh, about robbing, but brought him into the black arts. Okay. Um, believe it or not, this guy Nears was found guilty of having murdered about 544 individuals, including 24 pregnant women and the fetuses. Okay. What he would do is he would cut the fetuses out of the woman's womb to eat it and to use it in rituals of magic. And that again, the reason I'm pointing this out is back then people would actually kill one another, you know, these robbers, but that thing of, of, of killing pregnant women to remove the fetuses and use them for black magic or to eat them, that, that to me is like, that's when, that's where the twisty sadistic thing comes into play okay now eventually you know he they uh, <laughs> one of the things that that uh, they found was um, that they were saying that the critical component of magical material back then was exactly that the remain of fetuses to cast spells and that that if you ate the heart of the fetus uh, this was all black magic by the way uh, and that that, that, to, that you made a concoction from the flesh and the fat of infants into magic candles, check this out, that when lit would allow them to rob houses without waking the inhabitants. Now, all you need is back then, remember, this is that they believed this themselves. They would actually kill, I'm sure, children or infants in order to get this fat in this thing. This is, you know, you know, whether you're crazy or you were basically dabbling in the black arts knowingly, who knows? And part of what was going on with him is that he would supposedly have this supernatural power, okay, that he could transform. In other words, he could become a skinwalker. But this is a good one. He could turn into a log or stone <laughs> and a goat, a dog, or a cat at will, okay? Now, whether he did or he didn't, Okay, I, me and, and Sam, we were laughing when we were looking at this because, you know what, <laughs> we were thinking, you know, here you are, some garrison soldier, and the authorities tell you, go out in the countryside and hunt down this Peter Nears, he's a black magician, and he kills babies and children and women, and here, five of you guys, or ten of you guys, whatever they could spare, go out in the countryside. You can't find anything. Do you really want to find this guy? I, we were saying, yeah, you're probably looking... You see him? No, I don't see him. How about you? No, it's, oh, there's some goat. He probably turned into a goat. And they come back because, believe it or not, back then superstition was so, so strong that you might think, wow, that's a load of BS, people turning into goats or a stone. Back then, including the people that were sent out to find you, they believed in these supernatural powers. And somebody that was in league with the devil, you were almost, a, almost afraid to catch this guy. Right. Yeah, I could see that. 
You know, it wasn't like, oh, well, he's going to try to kill me. And he probably even believed in his own magic. Oh, yeah, of course. Of if you course. think about it, he was a, a shepherd. He's basically almost invisible to society because he's constantly moving. Of course, and that was the thing. They moved around, uh, you know. But what I'm saying is that it's like, you know, think about it. The people that are sent, the authorities that are sent out to pursue you, okay? Because remember, these sheriffs or these judges or these people who were who had, let's say, the, 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 the city people saying, hey, you need to catch this robber. He wasn't the one that was getting on his horse chasing the guy on the countryside. Right. He was sending these soldiers the same too, that or, they, uh, you know, or whoever was assigned to do this type of work who were thinking, do I really want to catch this guy's a black magician, man? He eats little kids. He eats babies. I don't want to run across this guy. So we were laughing, thinking that they would ride out so far. And then just she said, we can't find him. Yeah, he probably turned into a goat. Let's go back. I mean, think about it, you know, <laughs> and, you know, because they, oh, but then the, the part that I found that this really does make to me a lot more sense was later on, you know, research finds that, um, that really what he was, was a master of disguise. Okay. That, uh, basically what he did was, and this was not only confessions from him, but from other people that were in his gang. All right that he would frequently change his appearance and uh, costumes and he would sometimes he would masquerade like a common soldier hello uh at another times a leper definitely nobody's going to come near you then and he had a number of other disguises okay um however certain things about him always stayed constant he always had a lot of money on him he carried loaded pistols and a huge two-handed sword i guess none of these things are what the normal person in one of these villages or towns or whatever would carry around with them anyway bottom line um one day eventually he's caught at a bathhouse because he leaves behind him uh, a bag that he would carry a precious bag with his magical materials and by then by the way they had already circulated what he looked like so they, somebody picked up on when he was at the bathhouse that this might be him because it sounded like him and somebody went back and the, the, his precious bag that he had left with the innkeeper, somebody opened it. And what they found was cut off hands and hearts from murdered fetuses. So that was their, that was like, yeah, we got the right guy. Bottom line, when they executed this guy, they tortured him and executed him over the course of three days. This was a special type of execution, by the way. On the first day, strips of flesh were torn from his body and heated oil was poured into his wounds was still alive the second day his feet were smeared with heated oil and then held over glowing coals thereby roasting him that must have smelled wonderful and finally on the third day which was the 16th of september 1581 he was dragged to this place of execution execution and broken on the wheel okay now the wheel was slammed down upon him 42 times and still alive he was finally dismembered by quartering okay now and we were you know me and Sam were also talking about this, which was, you know, obviously, based on all the murders that he committed, whether he confessed to them or whether more were attributed to him, whatever, because he was a black magician, you know, they did like a three, a, this was a, like a weekend pass thing, a three-day thing. We were talking, Sam, that basically not only were the, the church authorities and whoever ran the town, they were basically telling everybody there, you better not, number one, be a robber, 
but because you're a black magician look what's going to happen to you you know so because they would have these executions out in the big plaza where everybody would come and look at it and it was a, like in a way a psychological you know a lot of people saying well you know what they're trying to show is justice for the people that were killed i also think that there was a degree of um psychological uh intimidation going on because what they were showing is guess what if you're a robber you're gonna get it yeah. but if you're in league with satan guess what he's not gonna save your butt and look what's gonna happen to you you're not you're just gonna get hung we're gonna torture you for three days before setting an example setting an example you know now uh the last one that we're gonna look at okay which was back in this is when the werewolf thing going on okay this was again uh this was in 1589 have you noticed that the 1500s were big for werewolf killer sadist kind of deal okay well anyway this guy's name is peter stuber stub okay now what go and he was called the werewolf of bedburg now <clears throat> from 1583 to 1588 this rural town of bedburg and when i say rural folks i want you to understand this was not a major city in europe when we say rural town this was back out in these rural areas superstition was rampant people believed in this um because and the reason why i'm saying this when you think who's going to believe a werewolf is running around the countryside believe it or not in these areas people believe this people really believed it anyway there was a streak of mysterious murders and animal mutilations children went missing and turned up dead in the field and people began to report seeing a strange wolf-like creature now a group of children <clears throat> were attacked and one of the children believe it or not got away and of course this child described the same similar thing now years went by and all these townspeople they're trying to set a trap for what they think is a wolf or something uh, one day some hunters are out there looking for it and they come across something and they let their their dogs loose to get it now when the hunters caught up with the dogs you know the dogs had finally chased something down they found that they had what they found was not a wolf but a local farmer named peter stew surprise now they were really confused and they were even thinking that what they were looking at was the devil looking like peter so they sent somebody back to peter stoop's house and um guess what he wasn't there that's when they thought okay peter is peter's the werewolf or the wolf so they turned him over to authorities put it was put he was tortured on the rack and he confessed now that check this out he was a one-armed farmer okay but he was a cannibal serial killer and he admitted that he was the wolf that had been terrorizing the town he said that he could transform himself into a wolf by putting on a magical belt here we go and that the devil had given it to him when he was 12 years old now besides killing lambs and eating their raw flesh he admitted to murdering 13 young children and two pregnant women and he even tore the fetuses out of the women's womb and ate their hearts panting hot and raw have you heard of this before this other guy was doing the exact same thing exactly. okay now he also admitted that he regularly committed incest with his teenage daughter named Beale and that they had a little boy, but he killed him and ate the child's brains. He also had a mistress, 
by the name of Catherine Trompin, who participated in the bloodshed. I don't know to what extent. But uh, they were arrested, uh, both his daughter and uh, fiance, they were arrested and charged as accomplices, and they were all sentenced to death in uh, October 1589. Now, Trompin and Beale, the, the mistress and the, the daughter, were burned at the stake. Okay, now, for him, though, they had something special. They laid him on the wheel, and then they had his flesh pulled off his body in ten different places with hot-burning pincers. And after that, his arm and legs were broken with a wooden axe, and then he had his head chopped off. And the and uh, after the execution, what they, they did is they took a wolf's head um, and basically put on a pike under his body and set it up in a public place, basically as a warning to anyone else contemplating lycanthropy. Now, by the way, I wanted to let you know that while I was doing research, I saw that at one point there was a theory that this guy, that the reason why people were, besides the fact that they were finding animals killed, was that maybe he even sometimes would wear like a, a wolf uh, a wolf pelt over himself. So how, how much did he really believe that he was a wolf or that he was mentally ill. But then again, Marna, I mean, Sam, we come back to that thought of, wait a minute, this guy was considered a respectable, respectable farmer who nobody had thought to look at because even when they captured somebody that looked like him, they still couldn't believe it. So again, here's another person that is acting normal enough so that the townspeople or the people that around him are thinking, hey, He's a normal guy. He would never do this. So again, we come into that. Where are we talking mental illness? Or are we talking pure evil? Or are we talking somebody that's saying that they made a pact with the devil because it's expedient and because they believed it? Or is it somebody that really truthfully was practicing black magic? Okay, that's the thing. I was practicing black magic and was taking the ingredients that at that time were known to be part of you know, satanical rites, you know, which I want to have later on another show, Sam, and we're going to talk about it, about, you know, um, you know, how much, because, you know, you know, we see a lot of shows where people back then were burned as witches and that there, were, there was, there was a, a stage where especially women were being burnt because of accusation of being a witchcraft and all this impacts with the devil. But believe it or not, there was some people high and low when i mean well born and also the peasants in the field that truly were practicing black magic okay it, it wasn't i'm not gonna say i think in the majority a lot of people got sacrificed because of crazy thinking but um there was a lot of people that you know for some reason decided to go and uh become Satanist or whatever that was. Now, the next one we're going to go into, I said, okay, let's let's leave Europe. Let's leave Europe. And the, the, the next one I want to talk about, okay, I thought was very interesting because this lady, you know, everybody has heard about Elizabeth Bathory, okay? She was the Hungarian noblewoman who was, you know, a lot of times she's looked at as a vampire, that she loved ensanguinating all these young girls. You remember that, that she would bathe in them and that you we were talking about that now yes, yes. they have found proof 
proof that the bathing in blood can't help. Can help. Have a youthful look to Have skin. a youthful look. Fresh blood, by the way. Fresh blood. Fresh blood. Incredible. It's actually a common practice in the what is it, plastic surgery world. Right, exactly. In plastic surgery world that we were talking about that now, but of course, and it makes you think, no, I'm sure back then she she wasn't ahead of her times. <laughs> what is it? The she was Kim Kardashian. That's what she does. That's what she's known for. Okay, I didn't know that. Kim yeah. Kardashian. Okay, well, you know what? And but the thing is, back back then, she was doing it for, you know, she was she was a sadist. You know, she was getting off. She fits the profile of a sadist to the T. You know, I'm talking about Elizabeth Bathory. But anyway, I found this other lady who she came a little bit like. In other words, they overlap a little bit, but they were kind of alive at the same time and they did the similar atrocities now the thing is very very few people are going to hear about this lady okay and um basically she lived during the 17th century or the 1600s in what is now present day chile in south america okay now back then this was under the dominion of spain because this was for spain the new world okay now, the reason also we're going to, and again, just like Elizabeth Bathory, okay, she was uh, a, a noble woman or well-born. And the, the person I'm talking about, her name was Catalina de los Rios Elisberger. Wow. But she was given a nickname called La Quintrara because of her red hair. She had bright red hair, okay, and green eyes. And apparently there is a a plant okay uh out in that part in chile okay which has like i guess either red leaves or red berries and this is why they started calling her la quintrala because her hair was bright bright red now um she was born around 1604 and, and her family again they were very rich landowners you know and um now, what's really interesting about her is that a year before her birth, her mother and her aunt are accused of witchcraft because her aunt supposedly tried to poison the governor of Santiago, which is the, the central city there in Chile at that time, which wasn't Chile back then. It was just part of the Spanish, um, you know, in the New World. Because supposedly the aunt, her, whose name was Maria, was upset because he had gone off and married another woman she tried to poison him but there were accusations flung at maria and at her, uh her sister which was going to be like Quitrala's mother that they were witches and believe it or not what saved them was that they even though this was the governor okay these people were so well connected in the government at that time that even with uh being accused of of being witches which normally that would have put a lot of women, put them on, you know, to burn at the stake. They they escaped it. Anyway, now, um, what, again, you know, they were very large landowners, okay? Now, what comes with owning those type of lands is that they were run, you had to have, like, a lot of either slaves, okay, or serfs. And back then, the natives of that area of Argentina, Chile, are called Mapuches, and back then they were called inquilinos, which were the equivalent translated to serfs. And this is in colonial Chile, 
okay basically they were being forced into indentured labor okay which for lack of it's almost like slavery we're, we're talking almost like slavery okay because this is these this was the backbone of the agricultural system of all these noble people that that had all these ranches and haciendas and stuff so basically um she is born into this type of colonial system all right and uh as a matter of fact i remember now she her name uh back out there there's a patagonian red flowered mistletoe called Quintral, which is why they call her Quintrala. anyway not only that she was supposedly even grew up in a house that was supposed to be haunted by either goblins or fairies so this lady had from um had a very unusual background and she also had later on what they said is her nanny was indigenous and was um a member of the mapuche culture which again were the indigenous culture of that area supposedly she's the one that schooled her how to make what they call native conjures okay and which was herbalism and poison okay now even by the time she's an adolescent this lady is known for maltreatment of her slaves okay and her she even works with a what's called a machi araucana which is a female shaman from the mapuche culture okay even so even though she's mistreating serfs and slave she's still going to the equivalent of a shaman for them to get information and ways of either knowing how to do conjures whether she believed in magical thinking or the herbal part which is the poison now when she's 15 years old she becomes a powerful landowner because her grandmother basically wills her something called the Tobalaba ranch okay and another ranch called la hacienda de la ligua y longotoma okay now this that last one was one of the most productive plantations in the area all right and even now in modern times they're saying that her ghost haunts this place now um it's really funny because she is very she she was she basically they saying she was very a very sexualized person but she could want you desire you but she could just as easily kill you now they're saying that around this time when she's an adolescent she falls in love with this young friar named pedro figueroa now she tried a lot to make him victorious vows and he never did okay now in other words she was going after forbidden fruit because remember back then there was nothing worse not only to engage in sexual whatever if you were supposed to be a young noblewoman but that you're going after a religious a clergyman trying to have him forsake his vows okay so again you're seeing this kind of perversion of her of what's even back then she was really going against what was traditionally normal or acceptable behavior way 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 in other words she didn't care what anybody thought all right now <laughs> In 1622, she's 18 years old. Her own sister accuses her of murdering their father with poison that she put in a serving of chicken that she gave him because he was feeling sick. All right, now, um, and they said that the poison that she gave him made him agonize uh, basically before he died. And that this was reported to the legal authorities but no charges were brought against her probably a family at this point was again because of their connections they were like okay let's not make this worse than it is right. all right now again do you see the sadist thing coming in here 
where not only is she killing her own father, but she just doesn't poison him. Yeah. Makes him agony. She in pain. She wants to see this man basically in pain. All right. Now, two years later, okay, which makes her what about twenty years old, she deduces another aristocrat from San Diego, uh, and she stabbed the guy to death, and then she blamed it on a mute servant. Okay, so. She's like, I'm going to blame somebody. And some people, well, how could she get up? Back then, these people, their word was like... Yeah, their word meant everything. You know, nobody, especially if you accused a servant or a slave, yeah, nobody a was going to... can't even... And a mute one. Okay, now, then later on, she was accused of murdering uh, someone by the name of Enrique Enriquez. He was a knight of the Order of St. John, and he wanted to marry her. What a mistake. Okay, she became enraged at his offer of marriage, thinking that he was beneath her. And he ordered one of her slaves to beat him to death. Then that poor slave was publicly hanged in the plaza. And she was only fined for the crime. All right. Which speaks volumes of how powerful her family was. And just that system to begin with. All right. Now, she was also suspected in ordering the assassination of a priest. And of attempting to stab another one who had visited her to try to redeem her soul. Mm-mm. Okay. Uh, he also, I mean, in other words, if anybody came and tried to shake a finger at her and say, you're doing something wrong, yes. she did not take kindly to it. In 1625, she was alleged to have cut off the ear of another man, uh, a name by the name of Martin de Ensenada, who was her neighbor and who refused to accuse her because he was afraid of her vengeance. I'd be too, because by then, remember... It's probably these, already rumored that she had committed all these This murders. is not like a huge city, you know, especially somebody's high profile. Everybody knew or whispered about it. How about how this lady could do horrible things and get away with it? So the neighbor probably thought, so I lost an ear. Who cares? I'd rather lose an ear than have her come after herself or get one of her servants or slaves to kill me. Now, she was also accused. I'm laughing because... When you read this, you're going, how, how, how long can somebody get away with stuff like this? Because again, remember, she wasn't just maltreating slaves and servants or whatever. She was going after high-ranking men. She was accused of having caused the death of seven young men of society. In other words, she would make love to them, all of them, at the same time, but they didn't know about it. But sometime they came, they kind of knew, like, because she was, again, she was very beautiful. And they would end up in duels because this, that was a thing back then, you know. She ended up causing the, the death of seven men who ended up in duels over her. And basically, she played them all. All right? Now... Mm, probably took pleasure of watching the... Yeah! The it was the ultimate control. She probably had no intentions whatsoever of marrying any of them. So anyway, she wanted money, wealth. She was a narcissist. That was a nice way of putting it. She was more than a narcissist. She was a psychopath. Uh, and they were saying that one of her favorite pastimes was to slash and whip her inquilinos or her serfs, okay? Now, the thing was that sometimes she got so much pleasure out of inflicting the pain that she went so far that she tortured them to death. In other words, she couldn't stop herself, okay? It wasn't like, I want to hurt you and I want to see you cry out. She just would take it to the point where she killed them. Now, in 1626, by then, her, her father was dead and her mother had died, so her grandmother becomes her guardian and negotiates a marriage for somebody who the guy was penniless but he came from a very distinguished family in Spain she gave him 20 years older than her gives her a great dowry and 
basically, from what I understand, he fell madly in love with her, and they had one child, a ten-year-old boy. I mean, a boy who was ten who died when he was ten years old. Okay. Now, when she married this guy, they moved into that hacienda La Ligua, which is where she was supposedly committed many of the atrocities against the servants and the slaves. And they say she did not care what age or what sex they were, which tells me she would beat whether it was a man, a woman, a kid. All right. Now, it was also during this time that gossip circulated in Santiago that she was engaged in the dark arts, okay, which was condemned by the Catholic Church. And check this out that she had been initiated into witchcraft and black magic by her grandmother, Agueda Flores. And also that the Machi who had taught her skills in herbalism and poison. So not only was it her mother and her aunt, but if you go by what they're saying, even her grandmother supposedly, whether this was gossip or real, was practicing witchcraft or black magic. Now, they're saying that during this, t this time, brutalized bodies of the dead inquilinos are continuing to turn up on her estate. And all she was getting was being fined by the authorities. Because again, remember, these people in that society were, you know, I guess even if personally you were disgusted with it. Yeah, but they were, they were high society. They were high society. Now. It seems like they created a monster between. Okay, back then, fast forward, 1633, she attempts to murder a clergyman by the name of Louis Vasquez, who again was giving her a hard time about her cruelty against her servants because it was becoming known. I guess this guy took it upon himself to try to defend them. Okay, and the bishop, which by the way, the bishops in these towns, they carried a lot of weight, all right? His name was Francisco Gonzalez de Salcedo. And he told the Council of the Indies, okay, that Catalina had murdered her stepdaughter by beating her to death, okay? Whether that was true or not, which is not far-fetched at all. Okay, again, she did not care whether this person was a servant or a slave or a family member all right now okay what's really interesting is back in may of 1647 a terrible earthquake shakes santiago and, and chile which they're prone to earthquakes demolishes everything except two churches one of them being the church of saint Augustine. agustin now they this family uh, they own the land right ne next to St. Saint Augustine, St. Saint Augustine. And bottom line, when the friars go in there, there's a statue there that's called Our Lord of Agony or Cristo Mayo. And they found that this statue was untouched, but that the crown of thorns that normally would sit on its head had come down to its neck. So they tried to put the crown of thorns back on its head and they had an aftershock. They tried it again, they got another earthquake aftershock, and after that they stopped and they left it there. And you're going to see by that picture that I'm showing that that statue, which is still in existence, still has that crown of thorns around its neck. All right? The reason why I'm going to say this is that this plays a part in the story of this lady. All right? And, you know, after that they would do a yearly procession with this statue to commemorate. But anyway, somewhere along the line, somebody from the church decides to give her this statue to I don't know make her more Christian I don't know whatever so she hangs it in her house but what happens the stories goes on 
is that every time she was abusing one of her servants or one of their slaves, she would turn around and say that the statue was looking at her disapprovingly, okay, and that she couldn't endure it. And basically, she says that no man in my house can have what they call a caramada, which translates as she could not stand for a man to show a face of disapproval against her in her own home, and she returned the statue to the friars, okay. In 1650, she becomes a widow, and they're saying that at this time is when she really gets bad. Apparently, her marriage, somehow or other, kind of like held her back, but after, after he died, everything went south. And in 1660, she's not only accused of witchcraft, she's accused of the murder of 40 people at her hacienda, okay? And they also bring in her overseer and his cousin, all right? So in other words, she had accomplices. But this was after they had done a secret investigation that that bishop had gotten. I mean, I guess he never was satisfied that she had gotten away with this for so long. Um, now they're arrested. They're brought back to Santiago. And because of their fortune and connection, she was the sister-in-law of one of the judges. Nothing came of the charges for witchcraft. And she was only ordered to pay fines for 14 murders of the 40 who she was originally accused of. Again, this was the story of, now in 1662, a new trial, they start a new trial for her. And back then, prior to the Shed Arabia, in order to pay a thousand pesos for each Negro slave and 500 pesos for each indigenous slave. Okay, but between 1662 to 1665, it makes you wonder if on they stretched it out, she dies. She died in January of 1665 before the process was completed. She was only 61 years old. And what's really funny is that when she dies in her will, she leaves a bunch of money to the church, leaves a bunch of money so that they can continue on this yearly procession that they would have with this statue, the Lord of Agony. And she leaves a considerable donation to them so that they can say all these masses for her soul and for the soul of the people she had killed. All right. Now, let's fast forward and let's look at the... <laughs> at the paranormal aspect of this okay this remember this was back in the 1600s all right um on the grounds where one of her homes once stood uh they in they erected was called a commercial gallery basically it was was called la galeria imperio it stood for 70 years and it was demolished in 2014 but anyway this was basically a place where people had their business offices and you know, and business, you know, business uh, commercial fronts. Now, in the basement of that location, all right, there was a restaurant named La Plaza de las Agustinas, okay, which they said that they would have pair. Now, this, this restaurant, which was built on the subterranean part of that building, would rested on the foundations of what used to be part of her house and where she kept her slaves. And they were saying that, especially at night, okay, that they would hear screams, uh, that there was even a blood that, that there were bloodstains that would appear on one of the walls that no matter how many times they painted over it it would still come back they had flying chairs and they had other parts of the buildings where people would say that they would hear distant conversations a woman screaming another person laughing and of course someone going up and down the stairs now another thing that was really interesting is back in 1971 there was a very well-known Chilean reporter by the name of Tito Munt now, on the 12th floor of that building, 
these very well-to-do Chilean gentlemen had established in 1912 an all-male sporting club, El Sportsman. Now, no women were allowed in this club. And guess what? In 1971, this Chilean reporter accidentally slipped and fell off the 12th floor balcony and got killed. And, you know, and a lot of people could say, well, you know, that just happened. But to me, it's like this was exactly the type of men that she preyed on when she was alive. You know, guys who thought they were like all that. Yeah. And maybe that's the reason why they built that there. The men is an insult to her. Or maybe not. You know, maybe they, you know, maybe they were like, they just established. But I'm saying that all male uh club excluding women you know and all of this and they all and, and apparently to belong to this club you know you had to be somebody in 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 that society okay and we're talking three centuries into the future but what i'm saying is that it sounds like a lot of the men that belong to this club would have been the equivalent in her lifetime to these guys that were high up in society which she ended up killing herself or getting somebody to to kill them you know which to me was like wow <laughs> but anyway let's let's leave the past behind and the, and the point of doing that is that you know what in the past back then you saw that they were serial killers which were peasants okay and they were serial killers and sadists who were well born okay some of them escaped because basically they they lived out in the countryside and it's not like now that you have police you know and people, when people were finding dead uh, livestock or dead children, their superstition made them think the devil, the werewolf, the whatever, whatever, okay? And now this lady, she was like Elizabeth Bathory, her position and her connections, basically, um, you know, to be, to be honest with you, she never got her just desserts. She died when she, yeah. because they say she died of natural causes, by the way. Yes. So the worst she got was slapped with fines and it makes me wonder if these donations that she did for masses was she was like laughing and this was supposedly somebody that was a third generation witch because her grandmother had been a witch but let's fast forward and let's come into modern times and ah uh, we're going to talk about a serial killer which i ne did, never heard about okay i had not heard about this man okay and believe it or not he was called the butcher of paris and we we're talking about him because it's you're gonna we're gonna laugh it even though it's not funny but it's incredible how long people can get away with things because society allows them to get away with things i mean he was not as well born as this other ladies like Wintrala, but believe it or not he was a doctor who operated in paris between like the early part of the 20th century from around the time of the First World War. His name was Dr. Marcel Petiot. He was called the Butcher of Paris. And believe it or not, I think that this man is so interesting. Number one, because I hadn't heard about him, but because there were so many signs that there was something wrong with him. Okay, basically, he was born in 1897, and for it sounds like it was like a middle-class family. Now, already they're saying that in 1914 when he was only six years old a psychiatrist diagnoses him as mentally ill doesn't say exactly what's wrong with him but okay his family is being told something wrong with your son okay which by the way back then being mentally ill carried a lot of stigma so so for somebody a psychiatrist 
to diagnose you that it was like there must have been something obvious going on anyway he was expelled from school a lot of times and and basically his family finished his education by sticking him in a special academy in Paris in July of 1915 and you know what and, and the reason why I'm going to bring this up Sam is even now like you say in modern times we see a lot of families that are well connected or that have some type of money where when their kids what was it that kid that um the one in the Texas, affluenza. the affluenza, okay, that he, because he was drinking, caused such a serious accident, where was it, four people or five people lost their lives, and he, all he got was probation for it, because he was not considered an adult, and he runs off his, with, with the help of his mother, you know, he, he could not understand there was anything wrong. Right, that the part of the defense against when he went to, right, when he, that basically that when he uh, was taken to trial, it was, he so was so well off that he really didn't understand the consequences of what he was doing, you know. Right. Not only did he get away with the death of all those people because he was drinking, then his mother runs off with him, I think it was to Mexico. Yes. Okay, and finally they were caught. But my point being that back then, I mean, don't get me wrong, I have children of my own and I understand that you want to protect your children. That's understandable. But back then, and the reason why I'm saying is you're going to see what, what happens with this gentleman, that his family is made aware by a medical doctor that they have a child with a mental illness. And after he's getting, getting kicked out, you know they put him in in a in a in a special academy in in Paris okay he's he does not he's not originally from Paris so they kind of shipped them off probably this was one of those academies where if you paid enough they would like we're gonna get you through this you know we're gonna say that he finished his schooling anyway he World War one comes around this is 1916 he volunteers goes into uh, for the French army okay now you know, back in world during World War One, you know, the people were getting gassed. He got wounded and gassed. And they're saying that at that time he exhibited more symptoms of a mental breakdown. Okay, second time this man, somebody's saying, hey, there's something wrong with him. Now, he's being sent off to various rest homes, which was typical of soldiers that had been, you know, hurt in the war. And he gets arrested for stealing army blankets, morphine, and other army supplies, as well as a wallet of photographs and letters. Okay. We're talking about somebody that is not only stealing things, but he's stealing stuff, like just things for the sake of stealing. All right. Now, he's was jailed in Orleans, and then he's, he, he, um, he sent, they sent him to a psychiatric hospital, third time again. And when they sent him to the psychiatric hospital, he's diagnosed with various mental illnesses. But... He's returned to the front in 1918, so I guess they must have been short on soldiers. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Okay, so this, 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 there's all these flags going up, but again, we're talking here 19, the early 1900s. Now, he's not there after the front. He's thinking, I got to get out of here. So three weeks later, uh, he supposedly injured his own foot with a grenade, and um, another diagnosis was given, enough to get him discharged and with a disability pension. So. This is the part that I was that I was laughing with with Sam about. After the war, 
He enters what they called an accelerated education program intended for war veterans, where he completed medical school in eight months. Eight months. Okay, now this is a man that was expelled from, I guess, the equivalent of high school or wherever. Spanish finishes his schooling in a special academy of parents and, okay, becomes an intern after an eight-month, I don't care how accelerated that is. Acknowledged that he had a mental health. Yeah, yeah, and all along the lines, he's got all these these things of mental illness. Okay, so he goes, and this is another part. I'm sorry, I have to laugh because it's like ludicrous. Okay, they becomes an intern at a mental hospital. <laughs> Can you imagine? Here you are, mentally ill, treating and becoming a medical doctor, and you're an intern at a mental hospital. Bottom line, he gets his medical degree in December of 1921. Okay, and he moves to a town called Vineuve sur Yvonne. Okay, and there, while well, he's there now, he's a doctor. All right, he's um, basically he's getting money from patients and from the government for medical assistance. Okay, because at this time, I guess France is trying to get doctors to go out there and treat people, so he's getting money from all sides. All right, now. At this time, he's already using addictive narcotics. I don't know if what they meant by that. If we're talking morphine or what, or opioids. I don't know what he was using. Uh, now, while he's working there in that city, he starts getting a reputation for what they call dubious medical practices, like such as supplying narcotics, performing then illegal abortions, and theft for money, uh, the bass drum of a local band, and a stone cross. Again. Even, I, I think to me, even if this man would not have been officially diagnosed before as mental illness, I would think, weren't any anybody around him saying, he might be a doctor, but there's something off about this guy. Mm -hmm. And this is what we were talking about earlier, Sam, that sometimes people's position, because he was a doctor, you know, it was like this mystique about, the word is gold. Their word is gold, you know, or, well, he's he's not, he's just peculiar, he's just eccentric, you know, that kind of deal, even though he's he's the pusher man, and he's using narcotics, and he's stealing the bass drum of a local band. Hello? I mean, to me, it's like, that's a little bit odd, but anyway, they're saying that they think, they think his first victim was, could have been a lady by the name of Louise de Laveau, okay? She was a daughter of one of his elderly patients, and he supposedly had an affair with her back in 1926. Now, all of a sudden, the Laveau disappears in May of that year, which, by the way, you'll see in the few, that this is a trend with people around him. And uh, later on, neighbors say that they had seen him loading a trunk into his car. Now, the police investigated, but they basically dismissed it as she was a runaway. Now, here comes the other kicker. That same year, he runs for mayor of the town. Okay, hire somebody to disrupt his opponent's political debate. And he won. Okay, he becomes a mayor. But while in office, he embezzles the town funds. Okay, I mean, you couldn't make this up if you wanted to. Now, 1927, he marries uh, the 23-year-old daughter of a wealthy landowner. And he also has a son by 1928. So... Again, we're seeing that double life where he's the doctor. That's what I'm saying. He's crazy, but he's not that crazy. He does all the normal things to pass himself off where 
nobody's really gonna like I'm saying maybe the the worst it was that he was peculiar but that he would not be suspected so again that thing is like you've been diagnosed mentally ill but how mentally ill are you that you still not only do you function but you can pass off for kind of normal now during his time the prefect of that city where he was at so I received a lot of complaints about his thefts and his shady financial deals and uh, finally suspended him in 1931 as mayor and he resigns <laughs> but then he still had a lot of supporters and the village council resigns in sympathy with him and then five weeks later he's elected as a council member so basically he loses his job as a mayor and he gets a council seat and by 1932 he's accused of stealing electric power from the village and then he lost his council seat but he doesn't care because he moved to Paris alright so as you can tell this man it's incredible you think it well is he lucky but how much of it was luck and how much was things that he was able to get away with because he was permitted to do so now he's in Paris now remember this is we're getting into the time where in Europe especially even though the United States didn't get into World War II till 1941 by the 1930s you already had problems with Hitler and war and all those things and uh, he's in Paris and he's attracting patients um, because he um, basically uh, makes fake credentials for them alright uh, and again he's still he's performing illegal abortions and again giving excessive prescriptions of addictive remedies and now in modern times we have you know these pill mills that now you know that that they're busting up because you get these so-called doctors or clinics you know where people go in there for a pain and all they're walking out with is prescription after prescription that even now we you know one of the main things has been the opioid um, problem that we're having in, in this country mm -hmm. <clears throat> where people start off taking the medicine for a legitimate pain and then they become hooked on it and they can't stop it and it was because they had a doctor that uh, didn't care to say hey I'm only gonna give you two weeks worth of this medicine for pain and you're not gonna get any more from me you know so um, bottom line and the, and the reason why I'm also bringing that up is that a lot of people think sometimes when these things happen it's like now this is this is a problem now and back then we're talking okay 70 years ago guess what we had the same thing we have a doctor who's addicted to opioids okay who's prescribing it illegally just the same as they are now okay so for a lot of those people that telescope and say it's never been as bad as it is now wrong all it has now is more fillers right exactly so anyway um anyway hold on a minute guys because i don't know sam are you going to be able to stay okay all right i just want to make sure because she's got an appointment a very important appointment to uh to to take care of and i just wanted to make sure that i didn't want to keep her past her time here anyway so let's get back to the butcher of paris okay so anyway here he is he's happily making uh you know money left and right okay uh he's doing illegal abortions he's giving people fake credentials <laughs> he's uh prescribing addictive addictive remedies okay that's what they call them now check this out which 
1936, he's given a special appointment by the government that allows him to write death certificates. Hello? <laughs> okay, they're giving this man the power to sign off on death certificates. And not only the, the thing is the reason for deaths. Okay? Mm -hmm. So, again, where uh, it's, it's incredible. You know, and some people attributed that this was times of war and that there was not the same oversight as there would be other times. But again, now, in case you think, well, maybe that's it. That same year, he was briefly institutionalized for kleptomania. Okay? But he was released the following year and he was also involved in tax evasion. So, I'm thinking, how many things could go on around this man that nobody was paying attention to or was it because like we was saying he was a doctor and you know like oh anyway must have had that gift of gab or okay his personality a doctor. besides i mean that he was saying something and he must He's have looked genuine evil. which by the way sadists and serial killers are known to have that that they can be very charismatic you know that they can know how to fake emotion really well and they're very charismatic and charming also we've seen that in killers today yeah 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 so you know you maybe maybe on paper you're thinking well how could this guy get away with it for so long but you know maybe this guy whenever somebody would come along and think twice he'd be like so charming and normal that they're like nah can't be no can't be the same person can't be the same person so anyway back in 1940 germany defeats france okay and people, you know, basically France becomes occupied by the Germans. And, you know, they were taking French citizens, they were drafting them for forced labor in Germany. Now, what he does is, this guy's great, he starts providing false medical disability certificates to people who were drafted, okay? And he starts treating them. By the way, I'm sure he was charging a hefty fine for people that wanted those fake certificates. Now, again, in 1942, he's convicted of over-prescribing narcotics, okay? And there were two addicts who have testified against them, but guess what? They disappeared. Hmm. Okay, so again, this is another flag. Now, um, later on, he's saying that during this time of the German occupation, he was part of the resistance. You know, I, I'm sure a lot of people have heard about the French underground resistance movement. Well, he's saying that he was involved in the resistance activities and developing secret weapons and killing Germans without uh, leaving evidence and planting booby traps all over Paris and he was having all these high-level meetings with Allied commanders okay and also working with some of the Spanish anti-fascists and all I can tell you is I don't know if any of you remember that movie A Beautiful Mind where the character that Russell Crowe plays has exactly he has this convoluted realistic he, and he was a, a, a schizophrenic you know diagnosis that was based on a true on a true person where he he had exactly that he saw himself working with government officials black hat government officials against the cold war and basically they were using him to find all these spies and at the end it was all make-believe only in his head and when i read this when i looked at this i was like this is it's not exactly what it is this guy, something in his mind made him believe that he really was doing this or not. He was, I don't know. Now, by 1941, remember this again, Paris is a war-torn city in a war-torn country. But he's making so much money, okay, that he buys a house, okay, in a very affluent part of Paris. And by now, he has over 3,000 patients, most of which were not poor, by the way, okay, 
Now, he goes and uh, he does somehow doesn't know how to keep a low profile, all right? And the Gestapo, all right, which are running the show at this time, they kind, they kind of find out about him. And believe it or not, at this time, and you're going to see later what I mean, he was saying that he was able to sneak people out of Paris, okay? You know, resistance fighters or Jews or whoever. But we're going to find out later. He wasn't, he wasn't, basically, he was escaping them into a cellar. But anyway, he becomes a legend in his own mind. And he comes to the attention of the Gestapo, all right? The Gestapo come to him because they hear about his route for the escape of wanted persons, okay, which of course they assume is part of the resistance. And uh, they take a couple of his uh, uh, accomplices or people that, that were sending people to him, okay? And one of the prisoners that they were going to basically, that, well, but what they did was they took a prisoner and they said, go to this guy, go to this doctor and tell him that you need to get out of the country and see what happens. Well, guess what? The guy disappeared. Well, there goes that one. That didn't work. So anyway, um, they, they kind of catch up with one of his, uh, one of the people that would send people his way and uh, they torture him. And he was using an alias by the name of Dr. Eugene. Okay. Um, and his accomplices, they, they spent a couple of months in jail. But somehow or other, they never identified anybody in the resistance. Because remember, all they were doing was sending people to him. They never knew supposedly what would happen to them because, of course, supposedly they were going to South America. Mm -hmm. Okay. Anyway, in March of 1944, this is when everything goes sideways for this guy. One of his neighbors in Rue Le Sur, which is where he lived, where he had the house, complains to police that there's a really bad odor in the area and that large amounts of smoke are coming from one of the chimneys of the doctor's house. Now, before that, it had been noted that there were other times that the same thing would happen, but everybody was just trying to get on with their lives whenever. Remember, this is around the time of the end of the war. But this time, it was so bad that the, the neighbor goes to complain directly to the doctor. When he gets there, he finds there's a note on the door of the house saying that the doctor is going to be away for months. So he's thinking that there's a chimney fire. He calls police and the police when they arrive they find out that this doctor lives in another house nearby they send for him but again they're fearing they've got what they call um an eternal fire in one of the chimneys and they call the firemen firemen get there and of course they enter the house and they find this roaring fire in the coal stove of the basement now the coal stove i'm sure even people like me that live in Florida understand that this is what people would use in the basement to keep the rest of the house warm. Okay. Well, they found the human arms sticking out of the open door and mixed in with the coal heap were more human remains, bones, limbs, and other parts too small to be identified. Okay. Now he arrives and he tells the police sergeant who must have been thinking, what uh, is this? What would you think, Sam, if you arrived and you found an arm sticking out of a chimney? <laughs> Not an arm in the oven, oven. It'd be like, what? You know, um, he, say, he tells the sergeant, hey, these are all Germans, Nazi collaborators and traitors. Okay, and I'm a head of a resistance group. And uh, that the Germans are going to have his head for this. 
and the sergeant believes him and lets him go. Okay, there you That's go. Crazy. Now, they, I guess they investigate a little bit further. Now, they found more remains. At the bottom of the staircase was a sack containing the headless left side of a human body. In the garage was a line pit filled with corpses at various stages of decomposition. And in the stable, another death pit was located. Now, back in the house, the basement sinks were discovered to be where the corpses had been drained of blood. And they found various... I guess bins uh, located throughout the property containing charred bones, fleshy pieces, scalps, and hair. They also found a soundproof hexagonal chamber, which was also located complete with shackles and a peephole. Here he could chain up his victims and watch their anguish. Okay, now, in case you're wondering what that reminds you of, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of H.H. H. Holmes. Okay, the serial killer that was abducting people in Chicago during that World Fair, that he had that whole hotel built, okay, with these soundproof rooms where he could torture people, do all these horrible things to them, and of course, it's soundproof, so nobody could, you know, could hear that. So again, I'm sure most people are familiar with H.H. Holmes because he was very famous and a bunch of books have been written about him. And here we had another guy in Paris you know, like 30 or 40 years later, doing something very, very similar. And again, masquerading as uh, a responsible citizen. Anyway, it takes about seven, you know, after they find all this evidence, now this, this sergeant is thinking, I made, a, I made a big mistake by letting him go because he, they eventually, they get, he gets a telegram saying, this guy is a dangerous lunatic. No surprise there. Now, it takes about seven months to finally track him down. Now, in this time, he's hiding all over with all these friends and family. And he's telling everybody the reason why he's hiding is that the, the Gestapo's out to get him. Okay? He even moved in with an old patient of his. Let's beard grow and he even gets a different alias. And bottom line, in, uh, Paris is liberated in 1944. Okay? And somehow or other... Because again, he just can't live a normal life. He's using this alias of Henry Valerie, saying that he was one of the resistance fighters. Well, guess what? When Paris is liberated, somebody writes an article about Henry Valerie. Okay, that's how they become aware of his alias, and they finally uh, arrest him at one of the metro stations. Now, um, one of his later on in the trial it comes out that one of his most lucrative things during the occupation was using that his code name of dr eugene was that he would tell people that he had a way of getting them out of germany i mean if you were if you were trying to escape from the germans or the vichy government that he could get you out of france okay and he could uh, arrange passage for you to argentina or anywhere in south america going through portugal i mean he had it for a price of 25,000 francs, which by the way, that was a lot of money. But I guess if you were in fear for your life, you would do it. Now again, he had like three accomplices who would direct people to go to him. And this included uh, Jews, resistance fighters, and even ordinary criminals. Anybody that wanted to get out of Paris, France, Europe. Now, what he would do is when they got to him, he would tell them that Argentine officials required that anybody coming into the country needed to be inoculated against disease. But 
rather than inoculate them, what he was doing them is he would inject them with cyanide or some other drug to knock them out in case he wanted to, I guess, play with them and put them in that soundproof room. Okay, he would then take all their valuables and dispose of the bodies. Now, later on in trial, he's saying the bodies were first dumped into the Seine River. Then, I guess when maybe that too many bodies were showing up, he would dismember them and put the parts in bags and he would throw them into passing trucks and then when that got too hard then he destroyed them by dismembering them and submerging them in quicklime all right it was said that at this time people knew that there was a murder on the loose there's one of the drivers on one of these trucks found the grisly contents of one bag which was two severed heads two feet the skin from two legs like a pair of stockings and three scalps okay so and it and think about it let's say for just a minute that theory of all I'm, I'm killing is you know criminals and the nazis why would you need to skin anybody with stockings if all you're going to do is kill them all right so again the sadist thing is absolutely there now <clears throat> after he bought that house on rue de la Sur, he also had the option i guess this house it had more space so he was able to dismember and incinerate them which is what why those neighbors kept saying well we're getting a lot of smoke bad smelling smoke eventually uh you know he goes to prison and nobody believes him you know that he was a double agent and blah 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 uh and they find that he really all his connections and all these so-called resistance groups they didn't exist and as part of the evidence that was brought against him they brought in 47 suitcases belonging to those who had paid him to escape from the germans okay um, and they believe that in the end he killed as many as 160 men, women, and children. Now, this was, I was really surprised. On May 25th, he was beheaded by guillotine. I did not know that at that time, France still had that mode of execution. Okay. I was, I, I don't know. I thought they were hanging people or something like that. So... Getting back to what we were talking about, um, again, we come to, and, and, you know, I still, we still had some other things to talk about, Sam, but, you know, basically we did like a real fast, uh, you know, overview of, you know, different types of serial killers and that basically, you know, they've always existed. You know, people want to say, well, you know what, um, like that serial killers now, like they have, um, for example, they have the killings at Gilgo Beach, the ones at Daytona Beach, uh, the ones in Atlantic City. These were all, uh, I think also in Arizona, you know, that these were prostitutes. They've never been solved. You know, and as a matter of fact, those are very well, those are very well known um, serial killing, which they've never been solved. But believe it or not, there are a lot of other serial killers who were never, ever caught. Okay. Now around the turn of the century, there was the Atlanta Ripper. Okay. This, this person, we don't know if it's a man or a woman, but we're going to say it was let's say it was a man okay uh this was right after jack the ripper had terrorized london okay now between 1911 and 1912 
he was estimated to have killed between 15 and 21 African-American women. All right. And I believe at one point I heard that there was a lot of criticism saying that not enough attention was paid to these killings in Atlanta because all his victims were African-American. Okay. But anyway, uh, at the end, there are different suspects for questions and, but no one could conclusively proven to be the Atlanta Ripper. And because of the, whoever it was is dead by now, but that was never solved. Just like the Zodiac. Um, there was another one I never heard about the Honolulu Strangler. Okay. This is the first known serial killer on the Island of Hawaii. Okay. And he supposedly murdered five women in the 1980s. Have you ever heard of this guy? Never. Sam? I never heard of this. You know, I'm that. like, what? Okay. I've never heard of this. Okay. And basically, the, he was, um, you know, that for example, back in 1985, they found a 27-year-old a uh, lady. She had been raped and strangled and her hands were bound behind her back. Um. Uh, now, supposedly he killed somebody else in January, a 17-year-old, uh, which, by the way, missed her, you know, her school bus. And, and what I'm trying to say is this, like, you know, some of these other serial killers, his, the majority of his victims were prostitutes or drug addicts. These were not. These were, like, regular people, okay? Uh, again, same methodology, rape, strangled, and her hands bound behind her back. Now, during the next three months, three more women were basically killed. Uh, the same, the same thing, which is why they started realizing that they were talking about the same person. Um, now, <clears throat> they had a suspect who died supposedly in 2005, but bottom line, again, they could never prove this was a Hon Honolulu Strangler. The Colonial Parkway Killer, this has gotten a little bit of attention lately, okay, but not really that much, um, which is why I brought it up. And basically, Colonial Parkway is located in Virginia, okay? And it's plagued by a series of unsolved murders. These are people that are found, that have been killed in their cars. And some of them have found the bodies, and some of them, they've never found the bodies. Um, and it started in 1986. This is uh, when a lesbian couple, Kathleen Thomas and Rebecca Dowski, were found inside their vehicles. It was pushed towards the embankment. Both of them been strangled and had their throats cut, okay? Then another year later, another couple, David Nobling and Robin Edward, were found shot to death in a nearby wildlife refuge. Now, okay, a lot of things have happened, uh, and they even think that that they thinking that whoever it is is somebody that's posing as law enforcement. They're saying because of the way that they're that the people are pulling over or that they're compliant. Uh, you know that that this might be somebody posing. You know, in other words, that people are parked out there, you know, having a romantic moment or whatever, and that right. somebody posing as law enforcement approaches them. So of course, people don't don't wig out, you know. And basically, they're compliant, and then right. that's when he's able to, I guess, force them and do whatever he wants with them. Now, another one. That, is the I-70 killer, okay? Now, the I-70, it runs 2,100 miles between Baltimore and Maryland. From Baltimore, Maryland, I'm sorry, to uh, Cofort in Utah, all right? Now, 
this unidentified serial killer started working this area in 92 that they became aware of. Okay, and what he would do is he would get off this interstate, go randomly into businesses and shoot the employees. Shoot them. Wouldn't rob them. You know, you know nothing like that. And of course, he would do it very close to the to the uh, interstate, which all he would have to do is, is get, back get back on the interstate. And what you were talking about earlier, Sam, which is that that stranger on stranger um, thing, where it's very difficult. It's very difficult, especially somebody that doesn't even live in the area. Okay. Um, he uh, and and what um, and and this is one of the things that we're saying. Even though he's a serial killer, and maybe part of his sadismism is to see people, but he's basically shooting them. His thing is killing them because I've heard that some of these serial killers, they want to that, that by killing you, they're capturing you. They're you become there. You know they have that that life and death thing over you. You know, and that the ability to do that to play God is what they get off on, because uh, you know, it's, there's no torture. Basically, he gets in, goes to the store. You know, let's face it, you're an employee at a store. You're thinking it's a customer, and he either shoots you or takes you in the back rooms, and he shoots you. Um, and um, again, like like small shop. Uh, usually, it's like strip shopping centers, like you know, that gift shops or stuff like that. So that's what he. What, what he uses. Um, um, now, they've stopped, so they sometimes think that there's a theory that he might have been arrested for something else, but again, never. Then the last one I wanna bring up is called the Connecticut River Valley Killer. Okay, this was, it started back in 1978, where a 27-year-old woman by the name of Kathy Milligan, she's found in a wetland preserve and she'd have been stabbed 29 times. Now, for the next 10 years, uh, they're thinking that this same person has killed six more women in that Claremont, New Hampshire, Connecticut River Valley areas. Same thing, multiple stab wounds. Uh, but he stopped doing it when one of the victims survived as the attack. Now, whether he was worried that she could identify him and he moved on to another location um, now back remember in 1978 was when they found the first body in August of 1988 we're talking 10 years later a pregnant woman uh, pulls into a convenience store parking lot she was attacked and stabbed several times by an unidentified male assailant okay and she was the one that survived the attack and um, she, uh, they're thinking that uh, that this was the one that maybe he feared that she was going to be able to identify him. All right, um, and uh, one of the persons um, that they think was was a, a, a Vietnam veteran named Michael Nicolau, and he had become a suspect because. Um, he basically, his first wife, I guess, disappeared in 1988. Okay, then in 2005, he murdered his new wife and stepdaughter before killing himself. However, they've never been able to confirm 
if this is indeed the Connecticut River Valley killer. Okay. I don't know if it was him or someone else. Right. I mean, that person could have moved on to somewhere else and committed crime because if, exactly. if they're still alive, they didn't stop. Exactly. Which because maybe that last lady that was pregnant. Or they just go to a different country and that's it. Well, no, I moved across to another state or go across the like you were saying sometimes because of jurisdiction things. Okay. Anyway, guys, that's enough for today. I hope you enjoyed the show. I hope you subscribe to my channel. I hope you like this video. I hope you come back. I would like to get feedback from you guys. If there is something, uh, something that you would like uh, for me to bring on as far as guests, okay. And again, you know, uh, me and uh, Sam were going to have other Q and A's. All right. Um, I, I, unfortunately, I couldn't look at some of the questions that came in, but I'm going to address them later on, and uh, maybe I'll address some of them in the credits of the show. Um, but again you know the point is that as much as serial killers are glorified now because of the media and reality shows they've always been around and we always come back to are they insane are they evil i personally think they're evil you know and what goes into the making of a serial killer maybe we're going to do a show on that one sam what do you think how do these end up are they born this way or are they made into this you know good question they both. they're both right i think there's both Okay. All right, guys. It's been great to spend this time with you, and I hope you really enjoy it. Take care. See you guys.